Ordinary Voices is sponsored by RCL Worship Resources. RCL Worship Resources is creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Their team of gifted writers and editors are creating worship planning materials to support congregations and leaders. Visit RCL Worship Resources to see their broad spectrum of resources. They're here to make your worship planning experience creative, easy, and fun. Visit rclworshipresources.com. Worship that works for you. So it was fun to see her own a restaurant, and people would come in just to see her and talk to her, and um, it, it was just really cool to see, and I always liked that and kind of wanted that, but I knew I couldn't cook like my mom. So I was like, <laughs> so how could I kind of do what my mom does without not being able to... It's like a bar. It's, it's great. Who does? Who hasn't thought about owning a bar at one point? You know? I know every child in lacrosse. <laughs> yeah, right. especially in lacrosse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is Ordinary Voices, inviting ordinary people into conversations about life and faith. I'm your host, Eric Elkin. I created this podcast to help me, a pastor, better understand people and the way they view the world. Now I'm inviting you into the conversation so together we might listen. Listen for the extraordinary stories dwelling inside every ordinary voice. Guests on the show are not authorities. They're simply people willing to share with us the authenticity of their own thoughts. I try to give guests the freedom to talk and let them determine the direction of the conversation, then reflect upon the things I heard them say. Each show, I ask listeners to listen like a good camp counselor. Good camp counselors allow children to express themselves without judgment. They listen for what the camper is trying to say. People who listen tend to understand each other better, and we live in a world desperate for ears. So let's begin today's show, Casey's Big Adventure. I was getting ready to preside at a funeral. The person coordinating the funeral was a young man from Gill Brothers Funeral Home in South Minneapolis. Our congregation shares a parking lot with Gill Brothers, so they handle most of our funerals. However, I'd never met this young man before, so I introduced myself and we started talking. He explained to me he graduated in May 2018 from the University of Minnesota. He graduated with a degree in mortuary science. However, he hadn't been around all summer because he took three months off to canoe the Mississippi River. Like, really canoe the Mississippi River. From its beginning at Lake Itasca in northern Minnesota, all the way down to its end in the Gulf of Mexico. He barely got the words out of his mouth and I was asking him if I could interview him for my podcast. A little stunned and caught off guard, he agreed. My only conversations with my guests prior to this interview was our first conversation and some exchanging of emails. So join me in meeting my guest, Casey Cooper, and discover how he got to this point in his life. Yeah, I was born on my mom's birthday, youngest of five kids in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Okay. 
Growing up, my dad owned a hearse livery service. So he owns hearses and has drivers and then rents them out to funeral homes. Oh. Um, and then he's also a coroner investigator. I've kind of grown up around the, the death industry. <laughs> um, yeah. So he did that, and then my mom owned a restaurant for a while and was a caterer, and then she worked for the bishop in the cross and then left to start a restaurant and then went back to work for the bishop. So I want you to know something. I was sitting there going, okay, five kids, March for Science, lacrosse. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I didn't want to jump there until you, yep. until you threw out yep. the bishop thing, okay? Yep. Great Catholic, yep. um, strong Catholic house you grew up in? Very strong, yep. yep. Going to Catholic school my whole life was nice because I graduated with 75 people, and of the 75, I knew 60 of them since I was four years old. So just great relationships, and so I was living with one of my best friends from kindergarten after I graduated high school, and going to school for business and and his mom had a, a massive heart attack oh and goodness. yeah just driving home from work one day massive heart attack crashed her car in her front yard and died so my dad asked if I wanted to drive the hearse for her funeral and I, I was on I was like yeah of course I would, I would be honored to drive Jeannie for for her funeral right and that was the first funeral I ever worked and ever really had first person I ever really knew that that died um, and I was 19 at the time um, so then I, I worked her funeral and the funeral director who I worked with was a great guy and he knew her too and he had a tough time and you know I cried and he cried and there was um, so then he, he invited me back to the funeral home and he was like yeah just come see what it's like to, to be a funeral director for the day so then I stayed the rest of the day at the funeral home and um, started hanging out more and more there and realized how awesome the job was and um, then I decided I wanted to be a funeral director. Up until the death of Jeannie, Casey wanted nothing to do with his father's business. He wanted to own a bar in a town, La Crosse, Wisconsin, dominated by bars and breweries. But her death and experiencing the grief of a childhood friend impacts him deeply and changes the course of his life. Family, friends, community, and faith. All these things carry deep meaning for Casey, which is not exactly the image we're given of 24-year-olds in our culture. When we first talked, Casey said he used the trip to raise money for the Children's Grief Connection, a weekend camp experience for people coping with the loss of a loved one. This is another experience which shaped his calling to what I call funeral ministry. So I asked him how he got connected to the program and what it was like. His relationship began when the director of the camp came and spoke to his class at the University of Minnesota. You think of death, you think of 90-year-olds and grandma, grandpa, you know, it's, that's the way it's supposed to be. And you don't really think about 30-year-olds and leaving young children and I think being friends with Mikey and seeing that, it, it just really left an impact on me. So right. she came and told our class about it, and right away I was like, I got I got to help out on this. I went to the camp for the first time last year, and yeah, I had some expectations going in, and it just, it, whatever I thought I knew or whatever I thought was going to happen just blew it out of the water. So what did you do at the camp? 
I was with the emerging adults. I was a little nervous going into it because I was thinking like maybe these kids would think they're too cool to come to this weekend camp or they would just bottle up the feelings or just you get in these small groups um, so you get in groups of like three or four the emotion just comes pouring out it, it, it was just incredible I mean it's how old are you I'm 24 yeah so I mean this is mm-hmm. your age group mm-hmm. I mean so you're in there as kind yeah. of a leader of that group yeah and facilitator and it's hard because other than Jeannie dying I haven't had anyone like that and so it's hard to talk about it with these kids because I just can't imagine what they're going through and I'm supposed to be leading this. So you just got to be open and honest and just let them know where you're at. They let you know where they're at. And and one of the things that you learn is there's going to be a lot of quiet time. Like there'll, there'll just be times that no one wants to say anything and everyone will just be looking at their their coffee mug. And that's good. The quiet is good. Don't don't try to break the silence with, you know, meaningless talk. I gotta learn that one as a pastor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well you've got so much wisdom. Pour on the world. Pour, I yeah. gotta share stuff, man. I gotta share. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I gotta share it. I gotta that help you like understand what your job is. Oh yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And I think it's it's important to keep going back because I think with any job, it's natural just to start going through the motions. Right. And um, funeral service for a lot of people, it's no different. It's, it's just a different job. It's not like anything else. Going reminds you of what I do at work has true meaning and lasting impact. I like it too because the follow-up. We do the funeral, and then we won't see the family until the next person dies. Right. It's a nice change of pace to be with them afterwards right. and see what, what they're really going through. The art of listening and dwelling in silence is a powerful lesson to learn. More often than I care to admit, I'm afraid of both, not knowing what to say or worse, saying the wrong thing. It is a common feeling for many people. In grief, more often than not, the most important thing is presence. It's a good lesson to remember. Casey's desire for a relationship with others comes out clearly. He enjoys seeing people beyond his role as a funeral home director. But I had to ask, what was it like to look for a job when the one stipulation you had for accepting a position was asking for the first three months off? When I was going through school, there wasn't a spot open at Guild Brothers. I just worked there as a student and I started interviewing at different funeral homes and I knew this was the summer because it was when I was done with school before I entered the real world. Right. And right. it's just the golden opportunity. So every interview I had, I was like, yeah, just so you know, I, I'm not going to be able to work. Like, it is non-negotiable. I'm doing <laughs> it this summer. Right. Um, and Dan was great. Dan's the owner of Guild Brothers and so he, I mean... Gave me a gift card to REI and was helped buy me a bunch of equipment and gave me a bunch of money for a children's grief connection. And he was like so supportive and it's like, yeah, go do it. You'll have a spot here when you come back. And Here's my bias in this interview. I love canoeing. 
the kind of canoeing that involves overnight camping. I'm fascinated by the planning and execution of these types of trips. I'm also amazed by people who take a dream, a wild dream, and make it become a reality. Sigurd Olsen is legendary among canoe enthusiasts. He's an author, environmentalist, and advocate who spent 50 years working to protect 1 million acres of wilderness in northern Minnesota, an area known today as the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. But I also found it fascinating that almost 200 years after Mark Twain first introduced us to Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, little children still get captivated by the wonder of the Mississippi River. Something within the human spirit still calls us to explore. I've always been in Boy Scouts and I've always loved the outdoors and uh, me and my older brothers, he he's even more into it than I am and he actually owns a canoe company and makes canoe paddles and he's starting oh, to make really? boats. And Where so does he do that? Is that it's in, in the cross. In the cross, yep. yeah. And uh, so he named his canoe company Sigurd. Um, I don't know if okay. Sigurd, Olson. Sigurd Olson. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, so love Sigurd Olson, love, right. love the Boundary Waters and I can still remember being you know, four years old on our boat talking to my dad like, oh, where does the river go? Whatever. He's like, oh, it goes all the way to the ocean. <laughs> and, you know, just from that point, the gears start turning. Like, Beyond the dreams of where the river goes, Casey also remembers he and a friend using a neighbor's fence to build a raft. A childish move without much foresight, but this is an adult trip with consequences. And adult trips take hours of planning. I wouldn't even know where to begin, but Casey's explanations makes me wonder what Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn would have done with access to the internet. So how do you go about planning that kind of a trip? Read a lot of blogs. <laughs> yeah. Read a lot of blogs, watched a lot of YouTube videos. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay, my, my daughter, who's in your age group, just goes, Oh, Dad, just go to YouTube. Yeah, you oh, you can, you you can learn anything on YouTube. Yeah. Um, I'm just thinking of all the great French explorers that discovered America. They should just go to YouTube. Yeah, right? It's so easy. It's so easy. Yeah. So what did you, I mean, so you, you did literally go to YouTube and I, find yeah, out a lot of stuff. I watched some things on YouTube. There's a Facebook group called Mississippi River Paddlers. Okay. Um, so you can go and just ask any questions, and they have what they call river angels. So you can just post on the Facebook page, like, hey, I'm going through Davenport, Iowa today. Um, does anyone know where I can keep my canoe while I go and buy groceries? And someone will say, like, oh, you can spend the night at my house. Or, oh, really? Yeah. Oh, oh I nice. can pick you up and take you to the store. And So it's a great little river community. The Corps of Engineers has a map with mile markers, so you can they have little dots for each mile. And um, same with the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources has maps of the upper river. So I just went through and I counted every single mile of the Mississippi and planned about where I should be each day. Um, and then I just made a spreadsheet about how many miles I do each day, a campsite that I could camp. And then I went on Google and just looked for like sandbars. So then I'd leave a note like on the left bank after this turn on mile marker 471, looks like there's a good camp spot. And it turned out I was one day away from what I, what I planned. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So my planning was spot on. So what did you, um, did you have a relative understanding of how much mileage you could do in a day? 
I told myself going into it, I'm not going to get caught up in the miles. So I was like, I'm going to take my time, I'm going to enjoy it, I'm not... But then it happens, you're like, oh, I can wake up at 6 o'clock today and I can knock out 45 miles and I can be ahead <laughs> of schedule. And so then it, it almost becomes a race against yourself to see how, how much you can do. If I stopped at a place I liked, then I'd stay an extra night and then I just tried to canoe more the next day or the next few days. And So it took me 69 days total. And of the 69 days, 10 of them, I didn't, didn't paddle or do anything. Casey's preparation and execution is absolutely amazing. Really had never canoed this kind of distance. You can map it out, but being devoted to that kind of a plan for 69 days, that is incredible. And then only missing it by one, I don't even know what to say. As remarkable as it is, though, it was not a plan without mistakes or unforeseen difficulty. How did you handle food? Did you do you just buy along the way? Is that how you did the food? Yeah, oh, I wish I could go back. And, <laughs> well, so right away when I started, I, I had a big container and filled it. I ate every single meal was pasta and canned chicken okay. for dinner. It didn't taste bad, but it was just so hot and so salty. So yeah. every day you'll canoe and it's 90 degrees out and it's, the sun's baking on you. And then you get off the river and make a hot, salty soup. You know? <laughs> it's like, I just want something sweet and something cold. Um, when I first left, there's maybe eight dams that you have to portage around before you get to Minneapolis. Once you get to Minneapolis, you can lock through on like commercial boats right. go through. So I brought this tub of food that weighed probably 80 pounds. And the portaging was just <laughs> terrible. So every it took me about four trips to carry all my gear oh for my each gosh. dam or each oh. portage I went around. My girlfriend has a cabin in Grand Rapids, which was about a week from the start. So I was like, I could have left all this food at her cabin. Her parents picked me up. I stayed the night at her cabin. I was like... And said I lugged this 80-pound container, and then with all my other gear, and yeah, and it's a container. It's not something you throw on your back. No, it's not. It's a a a container, right? Yeah. Some background information for people who don't canoe: at some point on a large-distance canoe trip, you'll need to portage. There'll be an obstacle that you cannot canoe through. So a portage involves emptying the canoe of its gear carrying the canoe on your shoulders around the obstacle, then carrying all the gear as well. Often it isn't until you're carrying your gear that you become aware of the weight of your own equipment. The Mississippi River has elevation changes, so a series of locks and dams were built to allow for large ships to travel the length of the river without having to walk the boats around each obstacle. At a lock and dam, a boat enters a chamber. A large door is closed behind the boat and the water level is either increased if you're going up the river or decreased if you're going down. When the water level is even with the direction you're traveling, the front door is opened and you move on. These locks and dams were primarily designed for large barges, so they are massive. But they can be used for smaller recreational boats, even old junky Sears canoes. But it can take a large barge two to three hours to get through a lock and dam. Casey said one of the more dangerous parts of the trip was navigating through these urban commercial shipping areas. His little canoe was invisible to captains navigating large barges. Plus, it was hard to tell which barge was moving 
and which ones were stationary. And then even when the barges were moving, they created waves which had nowhere to go. The wake of a moving ship would hit the side of another barge and bounce back in the direction it came, his little canoe getting hit simultaneously on both sides by waves. That's hard to canoe. Metal canoe or? Yeah. Um, yeah. The canoe I used, it was a 1977 Sears canoe. That's about 80 pounds too, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I always had canoes growing up, but there were these heavy plastic Coleman's that were right. even heavier than that. And so I just started asking around, does anyone have a metal canoe I could use? And suddenly my neighbor just pulled out this old janky dented up Sears canoe. <laughs> my... When I went through the cross, my brother's like, I just can't believe you're going. <laughs> you, then, you are not allowed to come to the yeah, store to yeah, upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And then there's a little, like, welcoming oh, party. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Where was your brother in this? <laughs> well, in... Corporate uh, sponsor. Yeah, he gave me the paddles. He gave me the paddles to my buddy. He gave me the paddles. Well, and that's what kind of sucked. Me and my brother always talked about doing it together. And we okay. always wanted to do it in a cedar strip canoe that we built together. And okay. it was always going to be our thing. But this summer was the only time I could have done it. And he slipped a disc in his back and just had back surgery, so he couldn't do it. Oh. So I felt bad for him because I was kind of living both of our dreams by myself. Right. Oh, man, that... Yeah. You're yeah. still talking, right? You're still good. good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but then he actually flew down. He got the okay from his doctor, so he flew down to Baton Rouge and then did the final week with me. Oh, which nice. Was nice. I mean, it is a little bit easier to navigate a canoe when it has weight in it. Oh, yeah. As a mm -hmm. solo, but mm -hmm. um, it's still only one guy doing the power. Yeah, there are some some days it, it was just brutal because you'd be going down the current, then the wind would be coming this way, and then it just turned my canoe sideways, and it was a dented up bent seventy seven. <laughs> so it didn't track very well to right. begin with. Right. But when you'd get the headwind, you would just go from side to side to side to side, and I would try flipping it around because people said if you, you're kind of more in the middle of the canoe that way, and it, and so some days it was so bad I would just get out and I'd walk along the shore because I just no matter how hard you paddled, no matter what you did, you just weren't going anywhere. Here's another thing about big adventures: once you go out, it's really hard to stop. If the weather changes and you get caught in a remote spot. There are very few options for cover. At home, when a tornado siren sounds, you go to the basement and take cover. What do you do when you're in a canoe in the middle of nowhere? Or what if it's just lightning? A metal canoe in water is very attractive to lightning. Ever hit a point of just going, ah, I've gone far enough? <laughs> no, I never, never hit that point. There are there some rough days. Yeah, there's one storm in Iowa. I was going through, it was a beautiful day, no wind, nothing. And I was actually meeting a friend who was going to do the weekend with me. So I had to get to Princeton, Iowa, and then just out of nowhere, this huge gust of ice cold wind. It was crazy. Then the sky just turned black, and then it really started whipping up, and then the tornado sirens started going off, and I was like, oh, jeez. Oh, then these two guys in a fishing boat came up to me, and they're like, 
hey buddy, uh, you hear those sirens? And I was like, yeah, I hear them. They're like, you know those are tornado sirens, right? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know. And they, they looked at me like I was just stupid. And they're like, were you going to like do anything about this? And I was like, yeah, I'm trying to get to Princeton, Iowa to, to meet my buddies. And his phone was dead. I couldn't charge it to tell him, like, hey, meet me 15 miles up river. And, right. and they're like, oh, it's a long, long way to Princeton. So then they threw me a rope and pulled me for a little bit. And then there's just this huge bolt of lightning. The guys are like, okay, that's it. We're, we're getting off the river. Because then at that point, my canoe was swamped with water because there's pouring rain and lightning. And you can either just leave your canoe here and come back to the marina with us, or you can hide under this tree and wait for it to, to go by. And it was like, well, I think I'm going to wait it out. So they're like, okay. So they left me at this little island and... I got off and took like two steps over this log and the whole island was just swamped. There's nowhere to set up a tent. If I do have to stay, it's still lightning. I don't want to get in my canoe and paddle. And um, So I waited for like an hour or so and then it lightened up a little bit and then I just, just went for it. Then eventually met my friend and we stayed at a hotel for two nights because <laughs> it didn't stop all weekend. Oh my god! So he he drove from Chicago. So he drove all that way to paddle with me, and we ended up not paddling at all. <laughs> I incorrectly assumed that this was Casey's toughest day, so his response when I asked him what was the worst day surprised me. Was it lightning and the thunderstorm and all that stuff? And I was that your low point, or did you have another low point? Or maybe even the second day. Because <laughs> well, I, thought, I thought I was good. I mean, I'm Scandinavian, so I'm so pale. And right, right. I thought I did good putting on sunscreen. And the very first day, I got just absolutely fried. And then the second day was like the marsh I was telling you about where... It was just a wide open swamp and I had no idea where I was going. I was already super sunburnt and dehydrated and um, I couldn't just like stop and make a meal. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is terrible. <laughs> so I think, I think honestly the second day I left was the worst day. <laughs> and it was... <laughs> Only 67 more to yeah, go. Right? <laughs> no, it was, yeah, it was tough. Let's take a commercial break. Ordinary Voice is about listening to the thoughts of ordinary people in hopes we can build a better understanding of ourselves and each other. So thank you for listening, but please consider sharing it with a friend. If you're interested in hearing more Ordinary Voices, go to the Ordinary Voices website, ordinaryvoices.org. Past shows are available on every format where podcasts are available. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher. If you just want something to read, sign up to receive the devotions on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. The devotions are turned into short prayer podcasts to help people find time in a busy world to pray. Ordinary Voices is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, ordinaryvoices.org. 
Also, check out RCL Worship Resources, creating dynamic, inclusive, progressive, grace-centered resource material designed to transform your congregation's worship experience. Visit rclworshipresources.com and make your worship planning experience creative, easy, and fun. rclworshipresources.com, worship that works for you. Now let's return to the interview. For people who are not aware, there is an area of southwest Wisconsin, southeast Minnesota, and northeast Iowa called the Driftless Area. Drift is a name given to the sediment left behind by retreating glaciers, silt, sand, clay, gravel. This area is driftless, meaning the glaciers never covered it. Glaciers also pulverized the land and flattened it out giving the Midwest the Great Plains of which most people think about. The combination of drift and flat landscape is why the Midwest is such rich farmland. The driftless area is nothing like that. It has steep forested ridges and deeply carved river valleys. This area of the river is beautiful. In some ways, it reminds me of the Hudson River Valley in New York or the hills of West Virginia. Let's listen to Casey describe one of his best days. What was your best day on the river? The day I left the cross was cool because I had a bunch of friends. I had a little, like, send-off thing, so my parents were there and a bunch of friends, and the news came and did a little thing, and and plus, I'm just a homer for the cross. I, I right. love love the cross, love the, love the driftless area. And, oh, yeah, it is beautiful, isn't it? And that part was, without a doubt, the most beautiful part of the river. Yeah, that whole... And it, that whole stretch from like Red Wing down to La Crosse, mm-hmm. and that, like you said, the Driftless area with the oh. the bluffs and, mm-hmm. and and everything is just I don't know. It's like something out of an early American painting. Yeah. Oh, it was. So yeah. when I left the cross, it was like I had this great day with my friends and family, and they pushed me off, and it was just a beautiful day, and no wind, like eighty eighty five degrees. And no boats on on the river, and there, um, just past the cross, it's called the Desoto. The bluffs come straight out of the the river there, because like in the cross, it's the river, then the city, and then the bluffs kind of behind. Right. But there on both sides, it's like nothing but bluffs, the railroad track, and then the yeah. river. So it looked like I was in like a fjord in Norway or something. It was right. just beautiful. Right. And then. So I was, I was just taking it all in, and I, I knew I just, I don't know, I did, I did, it was just, it was like nirvana. Right. I, yeah. It was like euphoria. I just yeah. couldn't, couldn't believe like that one. It was always my dream. I, that's where I grew up on the river. That's where the dream started, and I, I made it that far. And I knew it was just going to be good from there. Just think about that in and of itself. Just to go from Itasca to. Lacrosse mm-hmm. is monumental trip. Yep. Yeah. Well, and then it was cool because then I got to um, got to the dam, and there's me and one other watercraft, and there's you have the same conversation a lot with right, people. Right. Where are you going? Oh, yeah. Right. So this guy's like, "Oh, no way! If, if you make it to Lansing by tonight, uh, I own a Shep's Bar, so you can come and stay at the bar." And <laughs> so I was like, "Oh, okay." Um, so then it was getting late, and so I was paddling and paddling, trying to get to Lansing in time so I could stay at this bar. And 
finally I made it just as the sun was going down. And Lansing's a beautiful city too. And but uh, they have a cool little patio, and the bar goes over it. And they have a big chair that you can take your picture on, like just right at the foot of the bridge almost. So they're like, yeah, you can set your tent up, tent up in the grass, and. Um, so then I went into Lansing and watched the Brewer game. Brewers were having a great year, so that was fun. <laughs> right, right. Um, and it was just like the perfect ending to a perfect day. I'm not sure watching a Brewer game is the perfect ending to a perfect day, but hey, I'm a Cleveland fan, so who am I to judge? For Casey's sake, I should also note his other best day was spending four days in Memphis with his girlfriend. I just cut it out for time. He even extended his stay a couple of days to take in more of the city and its sights. As our conversation continues, you can hear how this new challenge startled me. I have canoed and backpacked in bear country. You take the necessary precautions, but I never thought of this obstacle and it really blew me away. My mom would always ask about crocodiles. And crocodiles are in Australia. It's alligators on there. Yeah. So every time I go, no, nope, Mom, haven't seen any crocodiles, you know, <laughs> which you do. They're all over down there. Um, Hold on. You do see alligators oh yeah. all yep. over the place? Yeah, it, it looks more like driftwood. Right. So it looks like driftwood, but then it'll just be going against the current. And then at night, you can get your spotlight, and then their eyes shine like orange in, in the spotlight. And... Uh, so it was kind of good she asked about the crocodiles. Yeah, that so you didn't I, have to lie I didn't lie. Yeah, I, was, no, I didn't see any crocodiles. Oh, oh, this is... So there's alligators everywhere? Yeah, you when uh, you'd pull up on a sandbar to set up your tent, you could just see the alligator tracks going up. and um, Yeah, it's pretty cool. So crazy. this is where you were camping? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would camp right next to alligator tracks. and um, Yeah, we'd have our tent set up and we could just watch them swim by. But, yeah, so anyways. Hold on, now, you're not going <laughs> by this one. Hold on. Uh, so, like, I, it, that would be unsettling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's wild boar down there. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we saw a couple wild pigs. And... Um, <laughs> are you a little nervous at night and sleep in those tents, or are you too tired to worry about it? No, I wasn't really worried, because I always think about it. It's not like... A bear, like a bear would come through and like rip a tent apart. If I was sleeping in the tent, I don't think an alligator would come and just chomp yeah. up a, you a tent. You, you know? don't think. You don't <laughs> know that, Casey. <laughs> yeah. So the only thing that really scared me would be, uh, and at that point my brother was there, when we'd wash our dishes, we'd wash them in the river, so throwing like, you know, food, chicken in the river, you know, or right. noodles and... So uh, somebody would be doing dishes and the other would stand guard to look for alligators. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I never, you want to know something, I never, I never thought about that until mm-hmm. you just said that. I never, yep. I mean, you would see multiple alligators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that was the funny thing. Have you thing. confessed that to your mom now? Well, that's part of it, was at this bar that's right towards the end. Right. There's this guy who... Uh, he whistles to him, and he feeds him marshmallows. Apparently, alligators love marshmallows. So he feeds, him, he feeds him marshmallows, and he trained him enough that before he'd feed him marshmallows, he'd whistle. So he would do this little whistle, and then these wild alligators would come swimming up to him, 
And then he'd throw marshmallows in the water. So he got there and he showed my mom this and she just about had a heart attack. <laughs> you told me there were no crocodiles. And there she was feeding wild alligators marshmallows. <laughs> oh my gosh. And it was it was crazy. Did did they have any warnings or anything about alligators? Do they any No, and I've never heard of anyone having problems with them or anything okay. like that. So You get down to the Gulf of Mexico. Do you do anything big to celebrate it? or? Um, well, my parents were there. Because once you get down to the Delta, the last city that has roads is called Venice. And then there's still a good 15 miles of river left after that. And then you're in the Gulf. So if you canoe to the Gulf, you got to turn around and then paddle 15 miles back upstream. So then my parents, God bless them, wanted to be there when I finished. So then they got a charter fisherman to be at the Gulf and pick me up and threw my canoe in his boat. And, and actually there's like a little bar 10 miles up from the Gulf. And it was just completely ravished by Katrina. And then they got all this FEMA money to rebuild it. And um, so that's where I met my parents at the bar. And the fisherman they were with, he was like, he didn't want to go to the Gulf, and he's like, yeah, my boat's so small, I don't even like taking fishermen out there, and I was like, no, you don't understand, like, I didn't come all this way to finish two miles from the Gulf, <laughs> I was like, I'll, you can come pick me up, or I'll just paddle back myself, I was like, I'm not stopping here, <laughs> so he was like, okay, so when I got down there, there's a little island, and they have the wave breakers, and, um, so then we parked, and I just ran and jumped and swam in the Gulf. And <laughs> then my parents were there, and my brother was there, and so we were all swimming in the Gulf, and it was, it was a cool moment. <laughs> Anything that I didn't ask that you would share about that? Sure, yeah. I think throughout my trip, the thing that I was most impressed about was the people. The people you meet, because after a while when you're all alone and, you know, you become reliant on complete strangers. I did. Right. And 10 times out of 10, 100 times out of 100, people would drop everything they're doing to help me out, just complete strangers. And, um, and I remember one time I was portaging around a dam in St. Cloud, and there's a son and his dad fishing and on the other side, and because I had so much stuff, it took me so many trips, and... So I would just leave some of my stuff unattended as I was making trips around dams. And this little kid was like, couldn't believe that I was just leaving my stuff there. And his dad was like, oh, yeah, you know, son, he, he's got trust in humanity. You know, and <laughs> yeah. he's like, yeah, he believes in people. Like, I do, you know, I do. And I was like, yeah, can you watch it for me? So the, this little kid watched his stuff. And, um, and same thing, the, they were like, as I was leaving, they were super nice, but I left and the guy's like, yeah, you know, Jesus loves you. I was like, yeah, yeah, okay, thanks, okay, you thanks, know? Yeah. But it was little stuff like that. Every every time I went, anywhere I'd go, people would help me carry stuff. Or, and it, the people were unbelievable. And that's what made the trip, was the people I met and just their willingness to, to help and 
Isn't yeah. that amazing? It was and incredible. You, and you go from northern Minnesota down to Louisiana. I mm. mean, all those states in between. Yeah. And a whole different yeah. landscape than what you see in the news. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's oh, just, it oh is. my gosh. But I didn't. I didn't have one negative experience with any anyone. I mean, it was incredible. Ah. Oh. That's good to hear. Mm-hmm. Over and over again, every time I speak with someone who has taken some fantastic trip, they will say the same thing. The people were wonderful. It seems to me a sense of fear builds among people who live isolated from each other, from their neighbors near and far. This fear becomes anger, and the anger becomes hatred. Casey traveled through blue states and red states, through liberal cities and conservative rural areas, and everywhere he went, the people were wonderful, gracious, caring, and helpful. If you don't believe this to be true, maybe you need to get out and take some kind of big trip. Finally, I had to ask, after such an amazing adventure, does he still like his job? Every day it's so rewarding. And How so? Well, because it's not every day you can go to work. and So, I don't know if you're a basketball fan. Yeah. Um, I'm 6'5". <laughs> okay. You know, Jimmy V in his, yeah, his speech. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. Um, what do you say? If you laugh, cry, and think every day, that's a hell of a day. Yeah. I don't necessarily cry every day, but I, I see emotion and human compassion in just the most raw form. So mm-hmm. just to see that and then laugh and when you when you work with death every day, it makes you think of your own mortality and your own life. And So when you, you have those three things every single day, it's like every single day is something impactful is happening. And I, I also think part of it is... We live in such a superficial world. People are afraid to kind of let you in, and you don't you don't get to see a real side of people. But I, I think one of the the coolest things that I've seen was I did a funeral for this lady. Her husband died. He had cancer. He was a young guy in his fifties, and he was a musician. And um, he sang. He had a recorded A-track of him singing Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And his wife had no idea that um, that this even existed. And his brother brought it to the funeral home at the visitation the night before, and they played it for her. And, I mean, she stayed there for over an hour, just bawling, listening to the, her husband sing Knock, Knock, Knocking on Heaven's Door. And it's... It's just to see human compassion, human emotion, that raw and that real. It's just something that people don't don't get to experience every day. Casey is 24 years old, and he laments the reality of us living in a superficial world. He is also a young man who works in the death industry. But his comment about superficiality reveals people can die long before they take their last breath. It has been my experience that the children raised in a technological world are the ones most aware of its emptiness. What first caught my attention about Casey was the paradox in which he lives. On one side, you have this amazing trip, a bold exploration of life, but on the other side is his ministering to those in the midst of death. After listening to his story, I wondered, 
Is it because he lives in both worlds, life and death, that he's more able to find life in death? I'm not sure, but I do know Casey understands those who grieve most at a funeral are those who've lived and loved, who've experienced life and meaning in community and family, and because they have lived this way, they are more likely to find the love needed to be sustained in their grief. As I was editing down the show, our Wednesday night adult study was watching the PBS-sponsored series called The Story of the Jews. In it, the host, historian Simon Shama, quoted a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life, so that you and your children may live. He said this is the verse the Jews use in the most difficult of times, to keep themselves grounded in hope. It helps them keep finding life in the midst of death. I thought it remarkable how these words fit this interview. God has set before you life and death. So how are you choosing life so that you may live? That's our show. I want to thank Casey for sharing, and I want to thank you for listening. Stay tuned to Casey, because I think he has another trip in mind. Now I'm hooked. Now I want to do the Yukon River in Alaska. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Boy, I bet his mom's going to be happy to hear about that one. But at least brother's going to get another shot. Casey explored the environment in my next interview. I will talk to Doug, who is someone working to restore it. Until then, check out the website OrdinaryVoices.org to follow along. This is a listener-supported show, so if you enjoy it, please consider financially supporting it by clicking the Donate button on the website, OrdinaryVoices.org. I encourage you to check out RCLWorshipResources.com, where worship planning is made fun and easy. Now, on behalf of all Ordinary Voices, thanks for listening, and I look forward to our next conversation. Mm-hmm.